Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and high-regulated industry. We're talking fintech, regtech, sextech, and more with thought leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to share insights, trade viewpoints, and get us all thinking about responsible innovation. And here is your host, Dara Tukowski. Welcome to Tech on Reg, everybody. I hope everybody is still hunkering down and washing their hands and staying safe and sane during this absolutely crazy time. As we all know, keeping up with the changing times is critical, and perhaps now more than ever. As you all become inundated with online content offers for the next webinar, I wanted to share with my listeners one you should definitely check out. InvestNet Yodli is launching an online events platform with industry experts to enable you to keep up with your connections, learning, and discussion of key topics that are relevant for the financial services industry. For more information and to participate in the conversation, you should definitely check out yodli.com launchpad. The first event will be taking place today, 11 a.m. PST, where we're going to discuss the impact of COVID-19 on your business, and that virtual panel is going to be moderated by yours truly. Tune in. So now that that's out of the way, on to today's episode. Tech on Reg listeners know that AI, its impact, its regulation and applications are a real obsession of mine which is why I'm incredibly excited to have Clara DeRodi, author of Decoding AI in Financial Services, on the show today. Welcome, Clara. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm so delighted to be here with you today. Thank you. So I had the pleasure, everyone, of meeting Clara when I was in Berlin earlier this year. You remember back when we were all allowed to get on airplanes and go to other countries? And we were both presenting at Finnovate Europe. And Clara, before I launched sort of all of my questions. Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do? So I, I am the founder uh, of a company called Cognitive Finance Group. We are a specialist AI consultancy. We primarily work with board of directors and decision makers in financial services, looking to fast forward their journey of adoption of artificial intelligence. Our essential work with our clients is around helping them understand the need of building an AI-first organization, and that is fundamentally different to digital transformation or any other conversations we have been having around innovation and digital transformation in financial services. I also work with a number of AI startups either as an investor or a board director. Um, we help them primarily with go-to-market strategy, fundraising, and governance, which is much needed in the run-up or preparation for fundraising. So my work is across the entire spectrum of AI, from the design, production, and creation of this technology, all the way through to procurement and deployment to the point which impacts consumers and users of this technology in financial services. Well, we're, I know we're going to get into some of those topics, particularly applications and governance, the ethics of AI, which I know is incredibly important to you. So based on that work, 
Can you talk to me a little bit about what motivated you specifically to sort of tackle what I've now read cover to cover and has been a really impressive body of work in your new book, Decoding AI and Financial Services? The reason for which I decided to write that book is um, primarily thanks to, to our clients working with a number of decision makers, board directors, and assisting them during their strategy days, uh, talking about the new shapes and contour of the world with artificial intelligence in the future. A lot of them said to me that there is a lot of information they need to absorb in a short period of time. And uh, they were wondering whether perhaps I could put all of that in a book. So that would become the the handbook, the AI handbook for for board directors. So I started with writing that book as an ad memoir, if you will, but also as an essential step to to understand what this technology so decision makers, board directors can then make the next step, which is designing an AI first or transitioning to an AI-first organization. So that was my motivation. Um, I wanted to empower decision makers uh, and in equal measure professionals from the industry with the knowledge, impartial, clearly explained knowledge as to what AI is. Because we talk about AI, not a lot of people actually understand or can explain what AI is. So that's, that's actually, that's a great point. So I want to I want to take a beat right there because one of the chapters that I found I thought to really be the most thoughtful in sort of explaining all of the different uh, areas of AI and I'm sure you get this all the time that people throw around the term artificial intelligence a lot without really knowing what it means and how sort of multifaceted, multi-layered, and how how many different applications of what we sort of very casually describe as quote unquote AI actually is without really understanding that there are so many different types of AI that when you talk about when startups say, you know, well, we're an AI company, well, well what does that mean? Are you, do you use machine learning? Are you natural language processing? Is it, is it an expert system? Like what exactly are you talking about? So for anyone, all of my listeners who want just a really delightful explanation of what that is, chapter two in the book, I think, goes into sort of each different aspect and application of AI in terms of the what's actually happening, the science behind it, whether we're talking about machine learning or natural language processing, robotics, and really kind of takes a little bit of a dive into each and every one of them. And I think explains really nicely how they're all, how they're all different. And Claire, I, I, I have to tell you that even for someone who I would consider myself pretty well-versed in it, I was definitely learning along the way. So thank you very much for that. I feel like I'm a little bit smarter. Well, my, my pleasure. Our clients and decision makers, actually, they find the content very useful, but they also find the questions at the end of each chapter, the questions which they can ask about different topics discussed in particular chapters. They find those questions very, very empowering. The moment you know what questions to ask, it means that actually you start from a strong point. You start any conversation from a strong point. So that's very, it's proven very helpful to, to a lot of them. So let's talk a little bit about, I think, for the financial services industry, what do you think, I think, are the most prevalent current AI use cases? 
it's difficult to generalize and I'm I'm not someone who's very keen on generalizing things, but we've seen use cases across. So, okay, let, let's start again. If you imagine a business in financial services, any business, insurance, wealth management, banking, any, any business model, each and every single one of these business models, they have a series of business processes, which happen every day. It's like a living organism, Right. Sure. And every single business process, anything from customer onboarding, customer service, all the way through to sales, marketing, HR, legal, IT, all of these functions, we, we've seen use cases in every single one of them. So the big question going forward is that how are we able to integrate all of these use cases into a seemingly joined up conversation all these applications have across a business model into one centered, joined up application. And that is what we call for our clients um, an AI first approach. So to come back to your point, AI use cases across every single business model, we can find them across all of them, but we can find different variations of what AI actually means or is in how those use cases are deployed. Now, another thing it's important to understand is not only that there are different use cases across a business model, but not all AI tools are equal. And they're not equal because one is the quality of the data. Of course, we've discussed this and everybody kind of knows that. But it's also the quality of the design of algorithms. And that is where, for many AI companies, that's where the secret source is, that's where the quality of the product is. And some of them can do a better job than others for the same use case, okay? So let's take an example. Um, may, may, so- be- before you launch, I may I ask a question on that? So for the average consumer, right? So you have all of these companies who may be trying to do the same thing. And as you very intelligently point out, not everyone is as good as doing it as, as someone else. How do you sort of as a consumer of said services, as a customer, sort of separate out the the wheat from the chaff? Like how, how can you tell who's good at it and who's not good at it? It's hard to tell as an end consumer. The decision of what tool to procure is, and it should be done at the financial services entity level. So say a bank would decide whether they buy AI tool number one or AI tool number two. And this is where, that's the entry point which affects how consumers engage with, uh, with this technology. So the procurement of this technology is absolutely essential in every single entity in financial services, is the gateway. is the gateway to the industry. And it's important not only because you want to buy the best technology, you want to buy a progressive, flexible uh, technology which can be worked and updated without having disrupting to disrupt your entire organization. But it's so important that you also buy at the procurement point, you also buy technology which is designed in an ethical way. And a consumer, Joe Bloggs, who uses his card to, I don't know, make payments or 
withdraw cash or engage with his bank, he wouldn't know. He doesn't know what happens with his data and his personal information, financial data. We don't know as end users. But so for, for, the, for the customer, i.e. the bank, right? Like let, we can simplify it a little bit. The customer... So if the customer is the bank, then that's a different conversation. But if the customer is Joe Vlog, the end user, who, who uses his bank account to, I don't know, deposit cash, take out cash or whatever uh, other transactions he wants to perform, then it's a different conversation. Sure, but there's the, not, and there's not a lot of insight there at the, at the consumer level. But no. assuming our end customer is the bank and financial institution bank A is figuring out, you know, what piece of technology they want to buy. What sort of insight do you have into, I'm sure obviously uh, the bureaucracy of banks is going to differ from organization to organization, but do you see those decisions happening initially at procurement? Do you see them getting their own experts involved? How how involved are the boards of directors in those decisions? Are they capable of making those decisions? That's kind of what I'd like to dig into. Um, so there are there are a few layers here which you uh, rightly highlighted. So the first one is decision makers at the board level. Do they get involved or not? In my experience and from speaking to others, they rarely do get involved because there is a lack of confidence to get involved in, in this kind of decision-making processes. How can you make decisions about procuring a, a computer, say, your laptop, if you don't know the minimum specs you're looking for or what you want to do with it, or whether you want to buy a product, a a laptop which will serve you for the next six months or you're buying a laptop to serve you for the next six years. So these are questions which require a bare minimum information around the technology involved. And you would find, at least I I found in in the European boards I've worked with, there's very little technology knowledge and skills and understanding of how this technology impacts business models in financial services at the board level. There's danger there though, right? There's danger there. Absolutely. And I think think the conversation is, is being articulated now around the skills boards need to have in order to do their job at the level they're required, which is high level of governance, high level of fiduciary duty, well, to satisfy the fiduciary duties they have. So we live in a day and age where you can't do all of this unless you know what you're using as a business and technology is becoming prevalent. And why you're using it, right? So it's and why not, you're it's... Using, exactly, why you're using it. So it's, it's absolutely essential at the board level to have this level of bandwidth to be able to ask the, the, the right questions at the point of, uh, of engaging or the signing off millions of pounds or dollars to procure these tools. So to answer your question, no, board level the engagement, very little because there is lack of information, uh, knowledge about this technology. There is a lot of confusion I've noticed at the mid-management level. A lot of people overnight they've had their job description upgraded or uh, mm. reformulated as AI experts. So until then, they were like, I don't know, data mining some you know, data sets in a spreadsheet. And all of a sudden, there are now AI experts. So obviously, banks had to identify people who were 
remotely close to what this type of work and provide them with a job description to to identify their new roles and their new responsibilities which is essential to do it but you can't identify and you can't breed experts who truly understand the implications of this technology at the business level not just that technology level overnight you can't do that it's impossible all right so though, though that hasn't stopped them from trying well, they can try. I mean, like a lot of people, I've, know pe- I've known people who turned down this type of upgrade uh, jobs and said, hang on a minute, I can't call myself an AI expert unless I have at least a one-year immersion in this course. And they went away and did an AI master's or some sort of fast crash course of, I don't know, six months, eight months. So I, I can commend those people because they, that's where the, the, the responsibility of your work actually is shown. So you can't be called something when you know that you don't know <laughs> right. much about that kind of job. So, but we we've seen an inflation of of a lot of skilled personnel coming into this market. I mean, it's it takes you only I don't know half a day to go at any of these big conferences and sit there like I did many times before my my panels or keynotes, and I sat there and listened to these experts and. They're really, they, they mean well. Everybody means well. We all understand that we need to upskill and move very quickly towards this destination. But very few people actually are prepared to go the extra mile to truly understand the implications of their work. Because this is why it's so important, the work they do. Not just to, that they're running a business transformation exercise. That's, that's part of the narrative. The longer narrative and the far-fetching narrative on which the business sustainability relies on is to build an organization, a digital organization, which truly puts customers first. And by that, I mean an organization which understands that this technology is exceptionally powerful And once you have people's data in your hands, you have to display a level of responsibility possibly equal to the level of responsibility of managing those people's money. So I do want to go back to sort of the ethics and responsibility question. That is the the ethics and responsibility. And why, just to summarize my point, the essential work around AI transformation or digital transformation, as some call it. It's basically, we are building technology. And quite a lot of people actually, they, they get about, they get a bit, you know, trembling when they hear me say this. And I've, I've seen very important people and founders of AI companies getting seriously cold feet when I say this. So I'm going to say it again, because it's so important to say it again. We are building technology which is so powerful, which will know our clients better than they know themselves. So we have the responsibility of building ethical AI and no other type of AI, because we are building a technology which will make or break people, not only at the mental level and psychological level, but we actually make or break their wealth. And by implication, we can make and break businesses and companies. And by implication, we can make or break societies. So the work we do 
with this technology is someone said, we are playing with fire and a lot of people, they don't even understand how to, how to have a minimum safety procedures in place. So one, well said, I think that anyone who spent any sort of real time studying the both current uses and potential uses of artificial intelligence and understanding its real world implications, I don't think anyone would disagree with that sentiment. And it is scary because it should be scary. I think that if you're sort of taking the responsibility of people's data, their money, putting that all together, I am perfectly happy with founders sort of shaking a little bit before they develop some sort of algorithm and then try to sell me something. They should be concerned about it because, as you say, it is very, very powerful. My real interest as well, so we, we know the responsibility falls on several different levels. Obviously, it falls within the private sector who's building the products and technology of the future. It lies with their board members. But then, you know, then we have the regulators because it's also their job to protect the public from powerful technology. And you made a comment earlier about how everybody means well and that you've listened to so many sort of sessions at conferences and keynotes and everyone is meaning well and wants to say the right thing, but they don't sort of have the level of either knowledge or training or sort of true technical appreciation for the power of what their technology is doing or the capabilities of what it does. In my world, I sort of see the regulators in the same light. They, of course, mean well. It is their job to protect the public, their data, their money, their rights. But I always get concerned when you think about sort of regulatory oversight and regimes being done by individuals who also don't have the same level of technical competence or appreciation um, and who've not clocked the time and study in to figure out what it is that they're regulating. Curious on your thoughts on that. This technology and the the progress we have recorded of in the past few years, everything moves is moving at a at an incredibly fast pace. And after this coronavirus crisis will end because it will end sooner or later whenever it ends. And when life comes back to normal, this progress will accelerate even further and faster. And it will accelerate because decision makers for the very first time in the history of building companies and financial services, they have seen for the very first time the value of blending advanced technology and operational resilience. So we've talked about operational resilience many times in different circles, and it's one of the regulators' concerns. And the UK regulator has been doing a phenomenally good job at advancing this agenda of building, embedding operational resilience in everything we do as an industry. And I'm sure other regulators across the globe have the same approach and the same direction. So the pace of technology and transformation will, in my opinion, accelerate when everybody goes back to work and when everything has been said and done and people sit down and analyze what we've been through. They'll realize that actually, well, it's a systemic risk to our industry if we don't build an infrastructure which is resilient 
and in times like this can be resilient autonomously. We don't have that. So coming back to your point and linking back to your point, what I've just said, the regulator is playing catch up in this very fast environment. And they mean well, and they're, the regulators in the UK, they're absolutely uh, so forward-looking and progressive and willing to, and other regulators I've, I've come across and discussed and worked with. I, I wish I could say the same about the US, but I'm very yeah. glad to hear that that's the case in the UK. Yes, I, mean, I haven't done any work with the U- US regulator. I obviously would welcome the, the opportunity to share some of our experience of working with other regulators. But everybody's meaning well. Everybody's trying to catch up and playing catch up. It, it is a case of playing catch up. So in this very fast-paced uh, environment, the regulator is playing catch up, trying to formulate regulations you know, seeing what AI labs have invented or whoever comes to market with a new product and try to regulate it after the product has been bought and implemented and put on the market. So how are we going to go about this? Um, Obviously, there are some excellent initiatives. I've seen regulators building the sandboxes, inviting AI startups to go and play in those sandboxes, test their products and see how they, they go to market. But it's a very complicated environment. And in this environment, what I recommend to our clients, uh, financial institutions, is to not sit and wait for the regulator to tell them what to do. I think we need to re-engage or recalibrate our engagement with the regulator and be more willing and open to go forward and say, look, Mr. Regulator, I've just came across this interesting product AI company, I'd like to buy it. But there are some, I've done some, my own analysis and my own evaluation of this technology at the procurement stage. And there are some downsides. How do you find those downsides? How do you find the weak points of any technology? Whether they are ethical points, whether they are technology points, or whether they are any other shape of points, customer engagement, all that. The, the cynic in me thinks that as much engagement as you can have with a regulator on the front end. And I'm a big advocate of labs and sandboxes. We've had very, very limited availability of those types of arenas in the US. A few states have been able to do that, but there's been nothing sort of orchestrated on a federal level. Consumer advocate groups here say that sandboxes are for toys, they're not for technology or things that impact, you know, consumers. So, you know, we, we here in the U.S. have got this tension. And in my opinion, and this is no secret to anyone who's ever listened to me pontificate about this, I think we're incredibly far behind, which is sad for us in the U.S. And I think over in the U.K. has been a much more sort of progressive, forward-looking, tech-forward philosophy, which is wonderful, which is why there's so much amazing technology, frankly, coming out of the U.K. For us here, though, I think it's I think we sit there and as much as you're able to engage with a regulator and show them technology that's coming to market and show them product, my fear and the cynical part of me thinks that we're not going to get regulation until something bad happens and then something bad has already (laughs) happened, which is what we're trying to prevent in the first place. Well, there are a lot of implications of what you've just said. And um, yes, I've heard people saying, well, we're not going to regulate anything properly unless something bad happens. 
it's true. A crisis, it, it, it is, it can be a catalyst for, for this type of engagement. But my point is that we don't need to hit the wall in order to over-regulate, because this, this is what always happens. If you wait for the train to hit you, then you're going to over-regulate everything what comes afterwards. Okay, That's why what we pr promote to our clients and how we engage with our clients is to, to encourage them to be forward and go to the regulators and say, we believe that there are some weak points in this, and these are the weak points. And we believe that you should in, uh, regulate this, this point. What do you say? When this kind of open engagement is fostered, I think we will, we will see a new level of trust-based transparency. But transparency doesn't mean trust, okay? But trust-based and engagement with the regulator. I think there is a cat and mouse kind of engagement with the regulator in some jurisdictions, you know, like, oh, I'm not going to say anything until the regulator tells me to do so. Well, when the regulator is going to tell you what to do, is going to be... You're yeah. not going to like what they have to say. <laughs> You're not going to like. So, well, it's, why, it's, why it's interesting. You know, every organization has sort of its own sort of risk tolerance and appetite for how it engages with, it, with its regulators. But I want to pick up on, I thought, was a very insightful point that you just made about how crisis, and we were talking about crisis in terms of, you know, something bad happening to consumers, but how crisis is a catalyst for engagement. The whole world right now is sitting in the middle of a very different type of crisis right now. You know, a pandemic that our generation has never seen. This is unprecedented for, for us and certainly unprecedented in the time of sort of technology that, that we have. I'm interested in your viewpoints on sort of given the crisis that we are all in right now, what sort of engagement do you see coming out of the crisis in terms of privacy, in terms of AI related to privacy? Very curious on your thoughts there. There were a lot of people immediately after the crisis started unfolding in, in the West who were very keen to, to promote the, the concept of let's trade off our privacy for group health. I think we have to be exceptionally careful with everything surrounding our, our privacy. And bear in mind that once you give it away, you can never take it back. And bear also in mind what Professor Joanna Bryson, who until recently uh, was a computer science professor and ethicist here in the UK, and now has moved to a different university in, in Europe. She said something interesting, and actually I quoted her in my book, um, in the governance chapter of my book, she said to, in, in an interview that we can give the data away and we can build any structures we want, but governments can change and the take of government on our personal data can change in 24 hours. And if we allow that to happen, if we allow this lax approach around our privacy, then we will see uh, our privacy taken away and dismantled. So I would recommend to those who are so keen to trade off privacy for what, health to actually think really hard, seriously hard, before they put anything on Twitter or in the public sphere. 
about other ways which we can treat the health considerations we which we have ahead of us and we need to address them which are other ways in which we can address those without denting even further into people's privacy and this is why coming back in a full circle to our first point of discussion around the importance of ethical ai in in financial services which is the focus of my work has been so for the past 5 years now we are building whether it's in the civil society or in financial services which is an essential pillar of our civil society we are building technology which will know our clients better than than they know themselves so we are building this mediums this channels this tools which are so powerful and if we don't put the thought into building ring fences around how this technology uses data and influences people then we are building some extraordinarily dangerous tools so in the same line of thought it's important to one understand this technology at the board level at the government level decision makers irrespective where the sector they work or the type of work they do they need to understand this technology exactly as they understand or learned to read companies accounts so to sit on a board of directors you need to understand and be able to read to have minimum accounting information knowledge okay right going, going forward to sit on a board of directors you need to have a minimum knowledge of what this technology is ai technologies are right because without that bare minimum understanding you can actually run a company into the ground without even knowing it so in terms of privacy and the future of ai we are able to build technology which is trusted ai we are able to deploy well thought through algorithms which deliver on building a sustainable and profitable business but don't infringe on people's privacies or undermine their trust because here is the final thought and the final arrival point we can build wherever we want because the customer will use it okay they have no choice but if we don't build robust trusted technology sooner or later that is going to come through and that's when we lose face in front of our customers and that's when we ultimately destroy business value so ethical ai is not about compliance absolutely not ethical ai is actually good business ethical ai keeps the business and looks after clients so they bring in new business and they stay with the bank they stay with a with a wealth manager they stay with an asset manager and that asset manager bank or wealth manager they continue to make money because because you can we, do well because you can do well by doing the right thing exactly you can do well by doing the right thing but you need to define what the right thing is and you cannot define what the right thing is if you don't understand this technology you can say i'm i'm going to drive a car okay 
I've, I'm deci- I've decided I'm going to drive a car, but I'm not going to go take uh, driving lessons because you know what? Uh, I'm going to, I have good intentions to drive the car and be safe. And I don't want to kill anybody on the road and I don't want to damage other people's property. And I don't want to put my life and my passenger's life at risk. That's my intention. But if you don't know how to drive the car, how to keep the car safe on the road, how to keep your passengers and your life safe, then you're not going to be able to do it. It's the same thing, the same line of thinking with AI use and deployment. And it's in the hands of decision makers. A lot of board directors said to me, come on, listen, this is AI technology. This is IT, okay? This, this is IT is not a board issue. And I, I, think, that's this, a very, I think that's a very short-sighted sort of myopic view. It's not a, but that's interesting. I don't know. That's sort of interesting and a little disconcerting at the same time. It is. It's the same. And I I gave them the same analogy with driving a car and saying, you know, I'm going to, I need to go from A to B, but I need to drive the car, but it's not my business to drive the car. What do you mean? It's, it is your business and it is your business as a board of director to to know what technology you're buying into your, into your business, to know what you're investing in, because this technology builds long-term business models, reinforces them, creates new business revenues models, new operational models. And if you don't understand what you're buying, then you're buying anything. So I'll give you an example, huge bank, well-known bank, they called us in. They bought like a few million pounds, a household name technology, and they were not able to deploy it. And the board signed it off a few millions because IT department sold it to them. And then they realized that actually one, they, the technology was not interoperable with their current infrastructure. And then, by the way, even if it was interoperable, then it wouldn't have supported the business strategy the board has set out. So what is the point in spending money on things which they don't support where you want to go as a business and they, they're not compatible with what you have in terms of technology infrastructure? That sounds and, like, a, that sounds like a, a multi-level fail, right? That's an IT fail. That's a board fail. That's a, exactly, pro, that's a exactly. procurement fail. <laughs> And that's how you destroy shareholder values. You know, when you spend money on things which don't, which you don't make any value out of. So, perhaps I should conclude here with some some numbers provided by McKinsey in one of their reports. According to them, seventy five percent of the costs of the all the money spent on digital transformation in financial services. So seventy five percent of that money goes to waste. Oof. So imagine for a moment how much shareholder value you actually erode by signing off checks, which actually don't don't bring any value back to the business. And not only that, you spend money on things which don't bring value, but if you spend money on things which don't bring value, then you lose credibility in your business. And the board then looks back to you and says like, well, hang on, you IT department. You just, I gave you about 10 million to spend on this technology. You told me that is going to do X, Y, and Z. 
why is that is not delivering on? So here's the, the bottom line. And the reason for which I wrote this book is for board of directors to understand this technology and the implications it has on business models. Because if they don't understand it, then they will continue to sign off millions, billions, to procure technology which actually won't deliver on the business objectives. And even worse so, this technology might not be ethically aligned, which it will even further erode business value in the future. So coming back to my point, this is why board of directors need to understand, one, the value of this technology and need to make sure and make a constant bullet point on their agenda to discuss the ethical AI adoption in their organization. And it's, I wrote a book about it. We, we work with clients. That's our ethos and that's been our ma- mantra for the past five years. Ethical AI for business growth and profitability. Well, I thank you on a personal level for all of the obvious hard work that went into decoding AI and financial services. I really enjoyed reading it. I would highly recommend it to anyone who's interested in the topic. If you sit on a board, if you're a venture capitalist, if you're a financial institutions operator, anyone looking to understand how really AI is transforming financial services, what it means to take ethical AI as a personal responsibility, as a societal responsibility. Really, really well done. And thank you so much for sharing uh, your time with us this afternoon. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me, Dara. Oh, you're welcome. That's all we have for today. Clara, I, I can't wait for the next edition. And I'd love to have you back on the show to kind of talk about some, some other stuff because we get companies all the time trying to talk to us about their products. So if you're interested in coming back, we'd love to have you. Thanks again. And I hope everyone keeps washing their hands, following World Health Organization guidelines, and making sure we all come out of this crisis as safely as possible. Thank you so much. Thank you very much again for having me and it would be fantastic to come back on the show and everyone take care of yourself. Stay safe.